0: The content and opinion shared in this podcast represent the experiences and viewpoints of the host and his guests. They do not speak on behalf of Amazon.com, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Hello and welcome to Owning It, where we talk about the risk and reward of leading by being unapologetically you. I'm the show's host, Matthew Dawson, a corporate educator and lifelong student, and today I'll be speaking with Jason Brooks. Jason was born and raised in South Central LA during the late 80s and early 90s. Jason had his life changed by access to a world-class education that included private school and Harvard University. For the past 16 years, he's tried to pay it forward by serving students in a variety of educational capacities, including as a Spanish and Mandarin teacher, World Language Department Chair, Dean of Students, and head of upper school. He's currently working to build an ed-tech startup whose mission is to use machine learning to make equitable and inclusive classrooms the norm. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you, Jason. Um, not meaning to, you know, butter you up too quickly, but I think that you're one of the few people in my life that I learn something from every single time we talk. And afterwards, <laughs> I, really, I really walk away from it like... You know what? I can change the world. Like I just had this conversation with Jason, and i I can go out and I can go out and do this. So I'm super excited to be able to actually record one of those conversations, so that other people can hopefully get that uh that contact high that I get from talking <laughs> to you. Um, they can get that same thing. So I'm super excited about uh about our conversation. And uh, in addition to your bio, because I, I I know that uh, you're doing big stuff in the world, and you also have a really unique story, but is there anything uh, as you think about answering the question of who is Jason Brooks that you would add to your story or anything about your identity that would be helpful for us to know as we get started?
1: Well, first thing, uh, you can change the world uh, and thank you for your far too generous uh, introduction. Yeah, I I was born and raised right in Watts, uh, the city right next to Compton in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's a mixed bag, right? Often when I tell that story, folks think uh, it was the worst possible to grow up but the reality is that uh just like everybody's childhood there's a mix of really tough stuff and uh really great things right so uh some of the tough things i saw uh, a neighbor you know violence was all around i saw a neighbor get shot in the chest at my seventh birthday party uh and in the same neighborhood i was mentored uh by folks uh who are first-generation immigrants and it's one of the reasons uh that i speak spanish today is because uh people who had just arrived in this country and only spoke english or only spoke spanish really took me under their wings um, and really taught me their language and culture in ways that I'll forever be grateful. So that neighborhood really shaped me um, and my parents had enough foresight just to see that the educational opportunities there at the time were just not what I needed. So literally over a summer I went I was about 13. I took a test on a Saturday and a month later, I ended up at a all-boys boarding school uh, out in Claremont, California, the web schools up there. So uh, it literally felt like going from, you know, the hood to Hogwarts. Uh, and after that, I had four great years there. And then from there, I went to undergrad and at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. And that was great, right? LA and San Antonio have, both have very rich, deep Mexican ties. So uh, culturally, the cities felt really similar and got exposed to Texas, which is a whole different deal. And then after that, Traveled to Chattanooga, Tennessee and taught Spanish and Mandarin there for eight years and then had the good privilege to, you know, travel literally the world studying and working. Right. So, I, you know, studying Spanish and studying Mandarin, those all sorts of doors open for you. And just to pursue those languages, right, you have to be able to travel. So that was a huge privilege and it incredibly shaped how I see both my individual context, our country's context and the global context um, there's just, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but uh, there's so much more that connects us than uh, really divides us. And at the end of the day, we all sort of want the same thing. Uh, and then, so after sort of being Indiana Jones for a couple years, uh, in my <laughs> early 20s and uh, late 20s, I uh, had the great privilege of applying to Harvard on a whim, uh, mostly because I was inspired by Obama in 2008 and somebody let me in. And that was another fantastic experience. Then I moved to Brooklyn to work in a charter school there. And then after Brooklyn moved back to L.A., came home, kind of had a Rip Van Winkle moment, uh, but helped work at a school here in uh, L.A. and continue to work in L.A. as a teacher and a school administrator. Uh, And then now, you know, let's see, I'll tell you a quick story. So let's see, three years ago, I was interim head of school or part of a team that was working for interim head of school and head of upper school. So uh, fancy titles for high school principal. Their teacher changed late in the school year, started teaching, needed to find a math teacher, Tough to find a math teacher any time of the year. March is incredibly difficult time to find a math teacher. Yeah. Uh, and I said, what the heck? Uh, I'm good at you know teaching. I was good at math in high school. I'll step in and teach high school math. <laughs> uh, not only was that uh, a game changer for my perspective, but also it really introduced. There's a computational unit in there about, you know, sort of computational thinking. And that sort of started the process of me leaning more towards data science and machine learning and really, Coming to a profound understanding that I had to understand those technologies and pair them with my understanding of education for the benefit of students. So that sort of existential crisis, that might be a little hyperbolic, but it really felt that conviction, you know, led me to take a step back uh, just to teach Spanish while I'm uh, sort of retooling as a machine learning engineer and then trying to do some cool stuff with that. So that's the three minute version of uh,
0: I got you. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the threads. Uh, so that this might not be too far of a jump. But, you know, language and education seems like there's a there's a thread throughout your life for all of those things. So the easy conclusion might be, hey, like makes sense that Jason would become a language educator. So mm. uh, because of that through line. But the other thing that I just want to probe a little bit on is that. Somebody, especially for us Muggle-born people, like applying on a Saturday to Hogwarts and then getting in the next month is not, you know, like something that actually happens as well. And, and when you talked about applying to Harvard, you were like, "Oh, I applied to Harvard on a whim, got in, like, did that thing." So, like, that—that that is not a common experience for most of us. So, um, I, I'm wondering how you think about, you know, just that opportunity or the things that you've chosen to do, been able to do in relation to, you know, your own education, your own ambition because it, it isn't uh it, it isn't the norm for most people
1: <laughs> uh big th- thanks for pushing back on that uh so so i'll just i'm just going to tell you stories all day and hopefully some resonate uh, i love and others, story. Just don't, yeah uh, don't bore you right <laughs> uh so when i was a kid i wanted to right i came up in the jordan era uh jordan is the guy kobe is jordan one that you're talking 1a 1b 1a 1aa right uh, and then I think LeBron James is the best has has had the best career. That's another conversation. Clearly, I wanted to play in the NBA. We can definitely I have that one later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would love to. Go, I would love to go deeper there. But get, go on, continue. Right.
1: So, like, just like, just like every child uh, in that era really wanted to play in the NBA. Uh, I am five nah, on a good day, uh, and that was clear that I was not going to be in my cards. The next best. Thing I wanted to be was Indiana Jones right so I grew up right in, in that time period where you see this uh, guy who is dapper and, and put together and a college professor and doing all these great things but in the summers you know, he's tumbling through you know the jungles of South America and doing all these great adventures so for me that was an image however flawed it is that really formed me with a sense of both adventure and instability at home and that really and also a huge important influence is that my mother is an educator So having her influence in the home and then falling in love with this idea of adventure and being out in the world really kind of solidified. Uh, And then to be honest, um, I am a hyper curious boy uh, of the type that, frankly, a lot of schools, they don't do well in schools. Right. The kind of I was the kind of kid like this is a real story. (laughs) Like I took my mom's dishes and took them to the second floor of our house and dropped them out of the window not because I was a predict- particularly bad kid, but I literally was like, I kind of want to see what happens. I dropped right. right a plate from my hand and that was cool. What would happens if I like up the ante and took it to the second floor? And to my mom's credit, she saw in me, not mischievous, but curiosity and really shaped that curiosity. Got me a library card and said, Hey, you got to go to the library every day. Here's a stack of books that you're gonna crush, and after you get that, you know you're gonna read more. So having that gift uh, be cultivated and, and, and affirmed and developed uh, for me uh, made some of the things that I sort of brush over later on in my biography I sort of normalized. It right? My mother and father said, "Hey, you know you're you're a curious kid. If you work hard, uh, good things will happen." So I've tried more often than not to sort of live by that ethos. Led to some really cool experiences.
0: The element there about curiosity is definitely, I think, something that we definitely share. I think we've had co- previous conversations about it, and we'll continue to have conversations about it because I'm super passionate about it. Absolutely. The thing that I want to maybe probe a little bit more on is maybe a new insight that I'm having as you explain that and help ask you to help me to make some connection points around. Again, this is a podcast about leadership. You know, we're talking about people in their careers and the choices that they make. I'm I'm having a thought here around leadership as adventure or adventure in leadership or adventure in career. And I know that you've just done a ton of different stuff, traveled, you know, had a bunch of different opportunities. Is that what you're talking about or something different? Like if you were coaching me and I'm going to ask you to coach me, Jason, like how could I be more adventurous in my leadership or more adventurous in my career?
1: Yeah, so uh, when I was in college, my coach used to say all the time, buy the ticket, take the ride, right? And what he meant by that was... Um, Life is scary. Life is fr- frankly terrifying, right? When you think of like uh, as we evolve from primates, we're just basically really smart oysters out there that should have everything come after it, right? So one of the things that we have to do is use this big brain and use our curiosity and use our gifts and talents to see what's on the other side of the hill. And for a lot of human history, that has led to fantastic discoveries, right? Uh, and, and the other side of that coin is that when you look at leadership, when you look at life, As an adventure, uh, oftentimes you'll come to uncomfortable conclusions, right? So one of the things that happened to me personally within the last year is that it became very clear to me that this job that I love being in the classroom, being around great teachers, helping develop a school culture, being, you know, the guy on the ground leading a school was all good and great, but there is a larger world out there. And my gifts and skill set might be better useful to more people if I took a step back terrifying step back to retool so that I could step forward, right? And that was one of the uncomfortable conclusions that comes from being a curious person. When you keep pulling at a thread, there's going to be part of that fabric uh, that you don't necessarily want to confront. But if you can build a habit out of doing difficult things and just normalize doing difficult things in the long run and over time and in the aggregate, the results are just hard to argue with.
0: In a previous conversation, you described uh, this transition point. So, uh, again, this might have been glossed over in your bios. But So, you have recently completed a pretty intensive machine learning program to retool, as you described. In order to do that, one of the things that you had to accept or, you know, jump into, where you had to show some adventurous, uh, your adventurous nature was to go from being you know, the head of the upper school, so high school principal to, you described this, I'm using your words, you said just a Spanish teacher, which there's no just there, like that's that's a pretty big endeavor, to be able to focus on this academic pursuit and this kind of career pivot a little bit on doing this ed tech startup. So I'm wondering as you describe some of the things that you pulled on the thread and you didn't maybe necessarily, there were some obstacles, the fabric was pulling a little bit more than you thought. Like as you've made this transition, is there anything else other than kind of what some might say, take a step back in your career so that you could propel yourself forward? Is there anything during that journey that's come up as an obstacle or that you just were unprepared of as you bought the ticket and are taking the ride?
1: Yeah, I think the part that I knew was gonna be hard and has proven itself to be true is, the emotional part of it, right? So the ego part of it, the the person at the bottom of my soul with whom I wrestle with every day, right? To go from having the keys to literally every door on campus, being able to have huge say in the academic outcomes and the life outcomes of students and families, to sit in admissions meetings, to literally to be able to make decisions on the academic trajectory of young people's lives, there's incredible privilege. And with that comes a certain sense of self where your ego can start to get inflated and to step back and have the key to one door. (laughs) And, And when you walk into that door, your classroom is cold and the things that you want to be set up aren't set up. And you have to set those things up yourself. And when you walk around campus, people don't defer to you because you're not the head. You're one person who's standing in front of a kid and academic eligibility or a kid and you know a perfect 4.0 so that has been a shift that frankly has led to some tear-filled nights right being like what the heck am I doing this is a gamble like we can talk about you know the adventure and all the positive side of it but part of me I'm terrified right there's the legitimate pay cut right where you're like oh my gosh I've got to provide for myself and my family how am I going to do that is this gamble really going to work out right? There's the ego cut, right? When you go to, I'm not sure if I want to post this job on LinkedIn. Ah, what are my friends going to say? What are the people going to say, right? That's all ego. It's all ego, right? There's the parking spot, right? The literal parking spot, the name tag sort of ego cut that we all feel, right? When we put our name tag on, we're at a meet and greet event and we sort of puff out our left shoulder to say, hey, look at tag. read the subscript. Uh, that There's a lot of loss there, a lot of pruning of my ego, that I had to go through that I'm continuing to go through. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of therapy and a lot of good friends and a lot of honest talks with myself to make sure that as I push through these difficult emotions, really trying to figure out what's the thing that I want to be left behind when I'm gone. Is it a lot of money? Is it a big, fancy title or is it a legacy? David Brooks talks about this often, right? Do we want resume virtues or eulogy virtues, right? And we would all say, right, at the end of our lives, that we want eulogy virtues. We want thousands of people to come to our funeral and tell beautiful stories about how we've changed their lives, and da 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 da. But the reality is that we most of the time live for our resume virtues. What's the thing that's going to give me the promotion? That's going to give me the next money? That's going to give me the stock options? That's going to get? That's going to help the company IPO? Right? Those are. That's all resume. That's all resume. And all of our resume is ego, right? And it took a really hard, long talk with myself in a literal five mile walk on the beach alone to make this decision. And to be candid, some days I'm still, you know, when you look in the bank account and you're like, man, I'm startup sounds fun until you have seven dollars in the bank, you know, right? And, and, and there's some real cost to these decisions. But if you trust the process buy-in,
0: I'm taking the ride and I just trust uh, that this, this new path will lead to a more fruitful end. One of the things that we talk about in my corporate context. So something that's, you know, a mental model that we often use is talking about one and two way doors. And the idea here Mm -hmm. is that a two way door is a a reversible decision. So you can go one direction, then you can walk back out that door, if you need to, a one way door decision is what it sounds like, Um, you kind of walk through the door, and there's not really a way back. So I, I, it sounds like but I want to give you um, an opportunity to provide some input that this pivot point in your career might have been at least it feels like to you, a one-way door. Is that accurate?
1: So, so I think I think uh, it belies one of the, I think, critical flaws of our education system, right? So K through 12, students are graded mostly numerically, by and large, the overwhelming majority is numerically, A and the numbers in the 90 being the best. And for 18 years, students are inculcated with the idea that A is good, F is bad. Getting all the right answers is good. Taking risks, making mistakes is bad. And then we continue that in college, right? Where you literally buy a house, $250,000 to go to undergrad. And that way of thinking is now cemented with, you know, a mortgage over your head as young people start off in the world. And one of the things that all, most of education is all about one way doors, right? If you, if you, Don't get, there's no, just now we're getting to the point where you can retake a test. Just now we're getting to the point where, you know, we're grading for mastery. But for most of education, if you get an A, that's an A. If you get a C, it's going to stay a C. Maybe B plus, you might get bumped up if you send some really, really good brownies. But for the most part, those are are all one-way doors. But the reality is that life is a bunch of two-way doors, right? Relationships are two-way doors. Jobs are two-way doors. Uh, Where you live are two-way doors, right? I told told you earlier, right, I lived in LA, moved away, traveled, da-da-da, and then came back home. That's a two-way door, right? You work at a company, you go off to retool, skill up, and then come back. That's a two-way door. And the reality is that there's so much more flexibility and two-wayness and options on the back end, but we just don't train kids and students, young people in particular, to think about the flexibility and to be creative. And if I can do anything sort of moving forward to really influence education at large is to infuse it with a ton of creativity. Because when you look at, frankly, what is an all brains on deck moment, where you look at the climate crisis, social and racial injustice, political crisis, gender crisis, right, where you think of like gender parity and equity in, in, in the workplace, all the things that we care about and all the things that need to get done to create a just society, we're going to need so much creativity so much creativity, and the clock is literally ticking. So to continue to produce people who think in a very linear, one-way fashion just won't work, right? Because the solution to climate change is going to be multifaceted, multi-pronged. It's not going to be one silver bullet. The solution to social and racial justice isn't going to be one solution. It's not going to be one test that we all pass, right? The solution to getting out of this pandemic won't be one thing. In fact, it'll be a constellation of really creative solutions that solve the problem for the
0: whole so um, yeah two way all the way <laughs> uh, thanks for that jason a slight pivot point and i want to give you an opportunity i know during this time of covid remote learning my kids are going through that mm-hmm. that there's been an exacerbated or like I, I think we're just paying a little bit more attention to issues of access and mm-hmm. especially in you know rural schools where There's kind of like these tech deserts where they don't have access to remote learning. And we've widened the gap, I think, in some ways around access to education, specifically around technology. However, at the same time, as I understand it, one of the things that you're trying to move towards in your career is technology actually is a great equalizer. So to actually bridge that gap. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that to reframe my thinking around it and where do you just see that connection point of tech actually being something that's not gonna further divide us, but bring us together?
1: Yeah, so um, a a few thoughts on that, right? So this past year has exposed, at least in this country, who we really are and our priorities and what uh, we as a country really care about. And that's been really difficult for a lot of people to see and witness, oftentimes have video of. People who have been on the receiving end of that treatment since the beginning of this country have known it all along and have been saying, hey, this is happening. These things are happening. These issues are happening. And I'm not just talking about Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about women at the end of uh, injustice, right? I'm talking about trans women at the end of injustice. I'm talking about LGBTQ people at the end of injustice, Black people at the end of injustice, our Latin brothers and sisters at the end of injustice, right? All folks who have been on the receiving end have for long been saying, hey, this is not okay. And because technology allows people to see things that they otherwise or not able to see before we're starting to see some of those things and it's becoming undeniable and how that relates to education is i think specifically with artificial intelligence and and machine learning uh, and data science in particular i think they can be they're incredibly powerful tools but what we found is for the whole of human history technology can and will only amplify what is already there and what i mean by that is you to go let's go all the way back to the stone age right the first person figures out oh if i beat metal into a certain shape, and I sharpen one edge of this shape, I can use this new thing called a knife to more efficiently cut meat. If I can more efficiently cut meat, that means I have more energy, me and my family have more energy, so then we can go and, you know, bring down bigger game, and then we have more time so that we can farm, right? And you see how the knife is a technological invention, and it sort of starts this great process. That's awesome. Also... If relationships aren't there, if relationships are unhealthy, a knife, that technological invention, the pathway forward now has become a weapon, right? And you see that same phenomenon happening in technology, right? It's well-documented, famous cases. A lot of big companies are wrestling with this now where you invent this really cool thing. A lot of people want to use it. A lot of people are using it for good. And then some people are using that technology to amplify things that we don't want to scale, right? They're using these tools to scale, Uh, Ideas that are just fundamentally destructive to human beings. So when I think about technology, I, I want to make sure that we're developing our technology in community, right? So that as we're developing it, we have a better understanding, a more clear picture of who is affected by this technology, how they're affected, why they're affected, right? Because if you build really cool tools for Zoom and kids don't have broadband access because they're in rural North Dakota, who loses there? right? If you're building really cool, personalized learning for students because of this and that, but if they and their community and their representatives aren't part of that curriculum process, you see very quickly how we've created another problem in which students are affected by technology. So I think, again, technology can do fantastic things. It has and will do fantastic things. But one of the things that we have to be careful of as Americans in particular is that part of the mythology and the intoxicating mythology of America is that uh, we are taught uh, and it's reinforced in our games, in our literature, in our movies, in our history, that there's one silver bullet and at the end of the game, at the end of the movie, we can rally back from the end and save the world. That happens sometimes. Most of the times it doesn't. Most of the time, change and technological change is incremental. It's hard and requires... Deep, deep thought. And as again, as we as we push through into this new world, I just want to make sure we're holding on to that truth as well as the imagination and looking forward to what technology can bring to educational classrooms across the world.
0: And I think, you know, so many people in, especially in corporate America, um, you know, multinational companies, tech is really looked at as, you know, a potential solution to scale. So how can mm-hmm. we scale through tech and how can we sustain the things that we're building through technology? And what I'm hearing in your response is that they're like, that's a fine balance, right? So like tech in and of itself is like one piece of this pie, but the other piece of this is like, what technology, who's your customer, how is it being implemented in what use cases? So maybe just like a high level for you, how do you think about striking that balance? Or like, what are the questions that we should be asking ourselves as we think about tech to both equalize and to scale, sustain, you know, the things that we're doing in the world?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it comes down to one word, right? Equity, right? Like who is flourishing, right? I'm going to make a few assumptions in the statement. I'm assuming that we care about our other fellow human beings. I assume that we care about uh, the most vulnerable. I assume that we're going to prioritize folks who uh, historically have not been prioritized. So if you agree with me on those assumptions, uh, the goal then high scale has to be human flourishing, right? And we're how can we use these tools to make sure that the humans that are in our sphere influence, that are under our scope of protection, flourish. And if we come, it becomes very clear that they're not flourishing. It is our responsibility to address that, right? It's 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 that simple and that hard, right? I think it's really easy to pile on to the big tech companies and say X Y Z about Google, Facebook, Amazon, da 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 da. I think the reality is that humans are incredibly complex, infinite creatures, right? We have souls and weird sort of things that pull us in different directions and all sorts of sequences that make it really difficult to get us all on one page. But this technology and these technologies, as they've always been, have the potential to change the course of human history. And with, uh, I mean, let's go Spider-Man here, right? We'll we'll all go Marvel, right? Uh, With great uh, power comes great responsibility. Uh, And if I've learned anything from my experience as a leader of a school and leader in other domains, uh, I always, I always make the wrong decision in uh, isolation. Humans do not do well. I do not do well in isolation. Uh, I make better decisions and there's an increasing exponential function that there are diminishing returns, don't get me wrong. But to the extent that I incorporate really different, diverse opinions that I can profoundly disagree with, but also respect and really take their input, then that end result is a little bit better And leads to more flourishing so i think that is sort of the ethical there's a lot of talk about ethical ai a lot of ethical ways of applying these technologies so my framework for that is what are the decisions what are the frameworks what are the processes that are ultimately going to lead to human flourishing Um, and you and you see that in really cool ways really really cool ways with uh, when you look at agriculture or even education right you look at some of the things where moocs right moocs were not a thing and now kids in east africa who Previously, we were totally cut out of that technology ecosystem. Now have an opportunity, right? You're looking at what happened in uh, the Southern Hemisphere. You look at what's happening in India and China. You look at the resources and the access that have been opened because of technology. Don't get me wrong. I'm a technophile. Let's go. That's the thing. But as we go down that road, it's incumbent upon us who are at the front or in the front of those lines to make sure that the folks that, that are in the middle, in the back, and at the very tail end are taken care of and brought along.
0: You talked a little bit about, and I appreciate the, the insert, the, any any opportunity we have to insert both the NBA or Marvel, like win, winning for me, <laughs> so you've done both, so I appreciate that. Um, one of the things that you talked about is the responsibility of power. And one of the things, you know, that I, I firmly believe is that we're all leaders and we all have mm-hmm. some level of situational, positional authority, power. And the things that we're doing, and so one of the things that you described is, you know, maybe I'm making a leap. So please correct me if I if I'm wrong about this. But one of those response, the responsibilities of power, as you've articulated, might be to help others flourish, which I think is great. How would you add to that list? What would be two or three additional things that, whether you're an individual contributor, you know, a new person in your career, or a seasoned leader, all of us are leaders. All of us have power. What's the responsibilities of that power?
1: Yeah, So I think I, when I think about the responsibilities of the power, I think I can and oftentimes I can get paralyzed. Right. Because whether you're leading a big company or your family or just yourself or what decisions you make or as you lead your, your dog, literally on a walk, uh, there are consequences to uh, leadership. And one of the things that one of the habits that I try to practice every day is being curious one minute longer than feels comfortable. And what I mean by that is. Almost every time I'm curious, a little bit longer than I think I should be, right? Because I've processed and I've done the data and I've done the research and I've done all these things and I've come to a conclusion. If I can put some air into, pump some air into that conclusion and wait for a little bit longer, almost always a new piece of information, a new perspective, a new person will join the conversation and radically upend my conclusion and usually either change my conclusion in a way where it, it forces me to reconsider that decision altogether or enhances. Um, so that that is one sort of tenet. Uh, I, try to, I try to, as I get older, I try to prune down to like, what's the best stuff? What's the good, good, good stuff that will keep me on this path? So uh, curiosity is a huge deal in terms of how to handle the responsibility of great power, right? Uh, if I can be curious, on how this affects other people, how it affects me, how it changes me, how it makes me better or worse. What things does it bring up for me? What things does it bring out of me? Paying attention to that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in good company here, but uh, Brene Brown talks long and very eloquently about Vulnerability, right, and how vulnerability is a balance to responsibility. When one of the lessons I learned from my first year leading the school, uh, I had on my desk uh, a book, "How to Be a School Principal." Uh, very quickly, uh, I got some feedback that that's a de- that that a lot of books are great. We're in a school. That's a book that should not be on your desk. So maybe take that one home. Uh, but that reinforced the the nature of. When you're a leader, you cannot be vulnerable. When you're a leader, you have to know it all. And certainly there is, there is expertise that is required for leadership. I'm not debating that. But imagine the experience of my teachers, my department chairs, uh, my other school administrators and students if they could see me modeling vulnerability. They knew, no surprise to them, they knew it was my first year. They knew this was my first time being a principal. So for me to pretend that I knew it all was a fallacy, right? And and then I'm inviting them to pretend in a world that is not true. And think about all the the lack of safety and the lack of clarity that 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 provides on their end. Versus I come to them and say, Hey, I've done my homework. I've prepared. I've done all the reading. I've done all the interviewing. I've talked to as many people as I can. Here are my conclusions. What do y'all think about this? Can we invite students' perspectives into this? Can we invite parents' perspectives into this? Can you poke holes? To this hypothesis, can you break it right? And that's more scientific thinking, right? That's more. Uh, I start with a, a hypothesis that I come to, and I want people to throw stones at it, poke at it, break it, drop it off the building, see if we can break it. And if we can endure all those things, then that hypothesis is just stronger, right? And then when I, as the leader, make really hard decisions, which is part of leadership, then because my hypothesis is stronger, the longevity and the long term quality of my decisions is it just improved. So
0: yeah, just a, maybe a, a summary of that. So some of the things that I'm hearing as we think about the responsibilities of, of power, aka, you know, leadership, being in a leadership position is one is the responsibility of helping others to flourish. Yep. Second to that would be staying curious a little bit longer than is comfortable. And then the the last thing that you offered was around just that vulnerability which we talk a lot about a lot on the show so um and i'm never i'm never tired of talking about it so thanks for (laughs) adding that as well and one of the things you know as an opportunity to maybe add to the list that we're creating here and to get some of your perspective on it is i've had a lot of thinking lately about leadership as intervention so the Mm. role of leader to intervene not just to you know, when we think about these big social movements to sort of say like, hey, this is wrong and we need to stop doing it. We need to do it this way. But also just to change the flow of the energy in any situation to like make something more productive, to collaborate differently, to just move a group or myself along in a different way. And so I want to get some of your, your thoughts about what you've learned as leader in terms of your ability to intervene. And what I'm going to actually ask you to do first is there's a really great story that I know about you, Jason, about um, something that you did early in your career in the classroom that involved a stapler and how you were trying to intervene (laughs) and... uh, Change the energy of your classroom—that um, had a pretty interesting result. So I want you to tell that story, and then uh, any reflections you have on what you've learned from that experience, but also uh, leadership as intervention
1: as we move towards the close of our conversation. Sure, man. You—you—you—you you got a good <laughs> research team. You went deep into the archives <laughs> on that one. Um, uh, my my first year of teaching, I was at an all boys school, and we talked about Michael Jordan earlier in the conversation. My department chair was the Michael Jordan of Spanish teaching. I mean, this guy had it all. He was charismatic. His Spanish was airtight. He had Quixote references just off the top of his head. I mean, he had grown up in East Tennessee, but you had thought this guy was Madrid through and through. So me as a young teacher, wanted to emulate him, wanted to have that passion. I was doing a unit on uh, office and school supplies, had a young man sort of doze off. And uh, because I wanted to be this passionate teacher and I wanted to be this great, charismatic, enthusiastic teacher, I grabbed the stapler passionately off my desk and said, Grabadora! and he slept through it. And I uh, gently wanted to, hey, wake up. This is this is this is my life's work. This is great teaching that you're witnessing. This is you're missing out on all these things. And I him with the stapler and I, I was 22, did not realize that the bottom part of the stapler was actually opened and in my trying to encourage this young man to 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 wake from his slumber in that effort I had stapled a kid I had stapled a kid and I'm looking at this young man's leg with a staple in it I instinctively pull out the staple the body does what it does and his leg starts bleeding so into his beautiful khakis that he had for the first day of school now are two red dots He realizes my teacher just stapled me. My class (laughs) realizes my teacher just stapled him, right? I realized I have just stapled this kid and everybody witnessed it. Uh, I, I could not have had a bigger gift at the moment. Uh, the, the, the young man slid in his chair, uh, looked me in the eye and with the best smile I've ever had. Uh, we both agreed in that moment that he had an A. Uh, the <laughs> he knew he had you. <laughs> he had a 99 out of 99 out of 99. <laughs> uh, at the parent-teacher conference, I'll never forget his mother came to me and said, I don't know what you did, but you've turned him on. He is passionate about Spanish and, and he he just won't <laughs> stop studying. How did, you know, his other grades are not good, but you know, he's got a 99 in Spanish and me you know, hey I don't know what happened you know just you know, show up and do your best and sometimes <laughs> the kids react to it uh, but, but that I tell that story uh, at the beginning of our career of my career because so often when we look at people toward in the middle or the later stage of the career they look like they've always had it all together and the reality is that we don't we don't and we just have to keep moving along uh, and one of the things around uh intervention and in in, in in leadership change is having the willingness to take risks, right? Don't staple anybody, please. Uh but take some risks, uh move the ball forward, and then be willing to change. Be willing to say, yes, there's a lot of inertia, there's a lot of momentum, there's a lot of energy going in this in this direction, but I'm either going to go against it or to the left or to the right. And I love what you said there about changing the energy flow whether you're an individual or a big time leader, wherever you are as a human being, um, the change of energy, uh, people respond to that, right? You see so many. One of the good things about social media is that uh, we are seeing more and more examples of uh, folks step in and really change, literally change the energy when uh, there's a negative energy towards a marginalized group, right? And that is really cool to see and really encouraging and a testament to the power of intervention as leadership or leadership as intervention uh and it doesn't have to be violent most often it is not violent it doesn't have to be forceful most often it is not forceful but the act of standing side by side with somebody the act of apologizing the act of asking for feedback the act of uh apologizing to a child right i'm sorry i stapled you i did not mean to do that my intention was actually to do teach a really compelling lesson that you would all remember. I did not do that. And in fact, I really hurt you and I'm sorry. And I'm going to give you enough enough space and time for you to accept that apology as you need, right? One of the things that, you know, my wife and I are are very involved, involved in foster care. And one of the lessons that I learn every day is that the soul that occupies my body is no different than the soul that occupies little people's bodies. And oftentimes because they're small or underdeveloped, little people, kids don't get the respect and they're not seen as having a soul, right? They're not seen as being human beings that are being formed. And we often dismiss them and don't listen to them when in fact they have really good opinions. And oftentimes kids, kids, kids are honest, right? Like, does this look on good on me? I'll say, yeah. Kids will say, oh no, you look fat. Wow. 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 Hey, <laughs> hey, like, hey, hey, hey. But that's, that's the truth. Uh, that get yeah, that kids can tell to power, right? And often, if I'm in a position of power, I want to stamp down that truth. Tell me the lie I want to hear instead of telling me the truth I need to hear. So um, to the extent that we can intervene and change that energy, I mean, I think that's that's really what it's about.
0: And one of the things that you helped me think about, Jason, and what you were saying is, is that I think Even in my own leadership journey, one of the things that I think I'm a little bit better at now, but I I know that I have multiple examples like you of getting caught up in is that aspirational leadership. So seeing somebody that you feel like has it all together and feeling like, oh, I have to do it how they do it. You know, this podcast is really about authentic leadership and part of that is being true to yourself. What... Intervention is for me and, you know, my sphere of influence and how I show up as a leader is going to be very different, most likely from how you show up other than us Ooh. having a mind melt, like, you know, there is there's is that piece of it. But um, like, and I think that as we sort of lean into that a little bit more, we become more accepting of the fact that like, how I teach how I educate is going to look very different to this other educator who might be wildly successful or this other leader or this other manager. And, we just sort of leaning into that a little bit more, I think will lead to better outcomes as well as us being more fulfilled in our Mm -hmm. roles as leaders as we don't try
1: to, you know, play by somebody else's playbook kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, for me, as I've grown comfortable in my own skin, and then it's taken a lot of time and a lot of self-work and a lot of therapy, so I want to own that. I balance the sense of confidence forged by insecurity, Right. There's a lot of things that I'm insecure about. There are so many, so many things I just don't know about. And I or other people expect me to know about. And for for too long, I pretended that I knew, right? And for too long, I faked it until I made it, right? But part of what happens when you fake it is that you hurt people. And those people don't forget that you hurt them. Right. So you can fake it until you make it. But where's the company? Where's your team? Where's the group? Right. You're great. You made it and you faked it. But let's take an inventory of the carnage around you along that path of faking it versus can we as a group come along? Can we as a group uh, move towards these things? I think one of the things that uh, you, you look at back in American history and you think of the stories and the narratives. And I'm so glad that you talked about sort of these archetypes that we are force fed in business in, in, in particular, I, th- I think it's not just endemic to corporate America. I think it's all the way throughout. Right? You hear of teacher of the year, right? You don't th- you don't hear a teaching team of the year or the teaching department of the year or the English department of the year. It's always teacher of the year, which reinforces this individualistic narrative. But the reality is that we are collective. Like we are social animals. We need each other, and we do better together. And this fiction of one great manager, one great teacher, one principal who turned around at school is just not true. For all of those things to happen, there's a, there's a team behind that person that helps uh, move the needle forward and one person gets that credit. So for me, if I can bring to my trusted team this insecurity, my flaws, my fallibilities in a way that's responsible, right? Brené Brown talks often about the difference between vulnerability and boundaries, right? I'm not just saying here are all the things and let's have this therapy session. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say, here's my expertise. I'm very, very good at languages. I'm very, very good at systems. I'm very, very good at child development. I'm not great at operations. And, and I'm just going to own it. Right. And that insecurity, like I'm a principal, I should be good at operations. I have all the keys, but I'm not actually great. So let's bring this person in who has that expertise to the extent that I can do that. That leads me in a confidence because one, I'm learning from the person who does have that expertise 2 I'm lending some of my cachet, my power to that person. So that elevates their profile and gives them a more solid seat at the table. And I walk through with this balance of there are some things I know really well and I'm confident on how this outcome is going to come. And there's some things I don't know. And me being honest with myself about the things I'm confident in, the things that I'm insecure in, and I don't really know, it leads again to this idea of more human flourishing and just hurting less people in the process. So to the extent that we can think more collectively and think in second and third layer and second and third iterations of our decision-making, I think that's going to be it. Because you, know, you can have a whole bunch of winners, right? But that necessarily means that, Uh, there's got to be a bunch of losers. And I just don't want to live and work and be in places where there's one person who wins and gets all the glory and everybody else who loses. Uh, That just doesn't seem to be the right thing to do nor the sustainable thing to do. Jason, thank you so much. My uh, plate is full, my cup
0: runneth over. (laughs) And, um, you know some other metaphors about food. It must be almost lunchtime or something for me to, you know, spit that many metaphors about food. But um, what I wanted to do uh, to, to wrap up our conversation, other than express gratitude, is just give you the final word about anything that, any new insight that you've had over the course of our conversation or anything that maybe is surprising you or that you wanna learn more about as we close.
1: No, thank you. I, I want one, I, I, it's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous uh, privilege and honor just to share a few of my thoughts. Um, just how I'm thinking about the world, and one of the things that you said uh, that will change my thinking, really challenge the way that I walk and move through the world, and literally use my body, is this idea of changing the energy. I really, really like that. Uh, and, I'm, and you have my my wheels turning on how I might physically stand next to somebody, or physically smize as Tyra says, over my mask, or how I might help somebody with groceries up the stairs, and how that changes the energy in the neighborhood, right? If who, who knows who sees my actions if I kind of help the, the classic classic you know the story of helping the little lady over the, over the sidewalk or across the street right if I can do that as a offering as a gratitude and what energy that might change uh, that, that, that's a, a really captivating interesting thought so I thank you for leaving that with me.
0: Appreciate it, Jason, and I look forward to uh, hopefully continue to explore that together a little bit, uh, you know, in future conversations. So thank you so much again for your time, Jason Brooks. um, Look forward to catching up with you and following the things that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.